thank you for downloading this podcast by Sheikh Ridwan Ibn Salim. For more podcasts, videos and articles, go to civilizations.org.uk. The title of the um, circle today is Consciousness and Complexity. And um, you may be wondering why I'm talking about uh, these issues to a circles for Muslim doctors. But um, I think these are really key, two really key issues uh, um, and really come under Aqidah, uh, uh, I believe. So nowadays, you know, our Aqidah is not, um, you know, we can't really study Aqidah now from books that were written uh, hundreds of years ago. Because the whole point of Aqidah is the issues change uh, from time to time. Uh, and the scholars of each time have to deal with uh, the, the theological challenges and issues that arise. Um, so these are two really key concepts that uh, will be really helpful for us as Muslims generally, um, but also as medics. Um, just a quick reminder of last uh, circle that we had we covered um, these ideas of uh, western medicine and the philosophy of western medicine and the philosophy of western science generally um, and we contrasted and compared that to our Quranic worldview and uh, I think I suggested last time that there may be um, some differences in our worldviews. Uh, not saying that Islam or the Quran is against uh, modern science or modern medicine, but uh, just pointing out that there are some differences in the underlying worldviews or underlying, uh, you could call them philosophies, uh, but worldviews is a better term, uh, which impacts on many, many different areas within those fields. And we gave some examples of those uh, last time. So inshallah, if people have missed that, they can uh, review the recorded uh, dars as well. So that was just a little bit of a recap of last time before Ramadan, the circle that we had. Um, So today, uh, as I said, we're going to talk about consciousness and um, complexity. And both are related, as will become clear. And um, also, hopefully, it will, it will become clear today and in future circles why I feel it's an important area to, to, um, to be, uh, have some knowledge about. Um, so consciousness is um, and it's something that we should uh, first of all understand what we mean by consciousness. Um, consciousness is different to conscience. Conscience is a different uh, con different idea. Uh, so don't get confused by conscience. Conscience is a sort of morality or a sort of um, your sort of moral compass, uh, what's right and what's wrong, that's your conscience. 
consciousness, what we're talking about is, um, um, well, as doctors, you probably know, because when someone's uh, in a coma, for example, then they lose consciousness, don't they? And you have your Glasgow coma scale and things like that. So consciousness is a type of awareness, a self-awareness. Uh, you could say uh, a state of being alive uh, or being aware of things, including yourself. And um, it's a very, very key uh, con uh, aspect of being a human being. Um, so to demonstrate what we mean by consciousness, I want to do a, a quick uh, experiment, very simple experiment. Um, so I want everyone to um, think of a random number between one and 100. So think of any random number between one and 100. And uh, if we could ask, I want to ask you what the random numbers are, just because I want you to speak, really. Um, so if, uh, Sonia, do you want to start? Give me a number between one and 100. 79. 79, great. Um, Subohi? 25. 25, great. Uh, Zakaria? Um, so 54. 54. Nurzaman? 31. 31, great. Uh, Mariam? 77. And Aisha? 37. 37, great. So all completely random numbers I'm glad to hear. Um, and Khadija? Three. three. Khadija, my daughter's in the room, she's said three. So um, there, what, what, we, what, you might, what you might consider a very, very simple task, you know, packing a random number between one and 100, uh, you may or may not know, or you may be surprised to know that you have actually just done something that even the most powerful computer cannot do, which is to choose a random number. So even the most powerful supercomputer or artificial intelligence cannot uh, complete that simple task that you have just done, and which you may see as one of the most simple things in the world. And the reason is because a computer, no matter how complex and no matter how advanced, does not have consciousness. It does not have uh, a conscious self-awareness. It's unable to choose. It's unable to choose. Um, I don't know if any of you have uh, studied computer science or anything like that or programming. Um, I used to do some programming when I was much younger as a sort of hobby. But anyway, the, the, the point is um, the way that they get computers to generate random numbers, uh, either they have to just give the computer a very, very long list of random numbers. I'm talking about millions and millions. And then it just goes through the list one at a time. So it seems to be random. Or they nowadays they use uh, algorithms. You know they have to give the computer an algorithm, and it, the next number it generates uh, is so it's got an appearance of being random, but it's actually not random. The computer is actually following 
uh, either a sequence, a very, very long sequence of uh, numbers that have been given to it, or it's following an algorithm, uh, a mathematical equation, uh, to seemingly uh, choose a random number. So this is a key uh, of consciousness. Um, the human being is a conscious animal. Uh, we have this uh, free will. We have this ability to choose between one thing or another thing. And a computer just simply cannot do that. Um, it has no free will. It has no consciousness. Um, so there's a theory uh, out there that, because obviously scientists, philosophers and so on, they, they've, uh, you know, discussed a lot about what it is that uh, makes us conscious beings, you know. Um, why is it that human beings are conscious beings and other things like computers or other uh, um, maybe plants are, are not conscious beings? Um, this is quite a, an ongoing, long-standing philosophical and scientific debate. Um, and what really is consciousness as well. But uh, one of the theories out there at the moment um, is that consciousness arises out of complexity. So because the human brain is so extremely, extremely complex, the human brain is far, far more complex than any uh, or even the most advanced computer. Uh, not not by a short, but by a magnitude of, of huge amount. Yeah. You know, they're not even in the same league, not even nearly in the same league. Um, so if you look at the human brain, uh, you're talking about 100 billion neurons. That is more nerve cells are in the human brain than there are stars in the sky. It's a phenomenally mind-bogglingly huge number of neurons. Uh, and then those neurons themselves have so many connections. I mean, now we know that uh, brain cells, neurons have hundreds, hundreds, thousands of connections uh, between each nerve cell to another. So when you multiply the number of neurons by the number of different connections, you start going into a phenomenally huge uh, degree of complexity. Um, estimated as, as much as 1,000 trillion uh, synaptic connections in one human brain, which is 10 to the power of 15. I mean, that's a number that's like sort of beyond uh, our imagination. And that's not even the whole story because as you know, probably when you look inside a nerve cell, uh, there's actually a huge degree of complexity within the cell itself. Uh, and we're talking about further billions and billions of molecules within the nerve cell itself interacting in a huge uh, complexity of ways. So when you bring all of that together, the complexity of the human brain is just uh, way, way, way degrees of magnitude beyond anything that any computer can uh, even approximate. Um, even when you add all of the computers in the world together, in like in the internet, the internet connects all of these computers together. Uh, 
you still do not even approach uh, the complexity of one human brain. So the theory is that uh, when you reach a certain degree of complexity, consciousness suddenly comes about uh, within the human being at some stage of evolution, if you believe in evolution. So the degree of complexity is directly uh, causing this self-awareness to come about. Um, so there is a theory out there that uh, when the internet reaches that uh, a degree of complexity that is comparable to one human brain, then we may see a spontaneous appearance of consciousness within the internet itself. Uh, so not one computer, but the whole internet, because the internet, if you think about it, is a is like one huge um, computer because they're they're all linked now. Uh, each computer, each individual computer, is linked to each other individual computer, just like the nerve cells are linked to each other in a brain. So there is this idea out there uh, within computer science and and so on. And it's been popularized in some Hollywood movies uh, where you've seen, uh, for example, the Terminator movies where the Skynet is called Skynet. Uh, and you become self-aware. It suddenly becomes conscious of itself. Um, so that's the idea. And uh, from an Islamic point of view, I don't, think, I don't think there is necessarily an Islamic point of view to that theory. Um, I think it's just an interesting theory, and maybe it's correct. I don't know. Um, I don't think that there's anything in Islam to particularly contradict or to affirm that particular theory of consciousness. Um, if it is true, then uh, that may perhaps that is the way that Allah has created uh, conscious beings. So uh, Allah Alim, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily an Islamic angle to it. Can I can I ask a quick question, please? So, just reflecting on this, where they think uh, about the use of things like AI, etc., and they're yeah. saying, for example, with GP work, um, at some point you're going to be able to have these algorithms that can factor in human feelings and emotions, and 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 provide a more, you know, basically replace us. Um, but um, just curious whether this is something that you're referring to here, and that it will build in a degree. Because you can have a mechanical algorithm, but what they don't have is an emotional intelligence algorithm. Um, and whether that's consciousness, because we don't, can't replace the soul. Um, but what do they understand? What is a secular understanding of, of consciousness and, and existence? And yeah, so I guess that's, that's my query. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're sort of talking about. Um, I think emotions are very closely linked to um, consciousness. Um, now, obviously, there's a whole discussion about what are emotions as well. Uh, from the diehard, let's say the diehard sort of biological uh, extreme would say that emotions are nothing other than physiological changes in the body. So anxiety is nothing other than the heart beating faster. But I think that's, I mean, that's probably a fringe extreme view. I think most people would recognize that there is 
a sort of conscious awareness of, you know, if your heart is beating faster, but that, that leads to a certain type of emotion, a certain type of perception within yourself. Uh, and without consciousness, I don't think you can feel, you know, because feeling is to do with being self-aware as well, to feel things, feel emotions. So that's why computers cannot feel emotions. It's just impossible for them because they don't have consciousness. Um, and I don't think um, it's going to happen in the near future. Um, there are some people, you know, uh, there's a physicist uh, I was reading recently, I forget his, his name's eluding me, a famous uh, um, physicist, mathematician from uh, Cambridge. He's, he's written a book arguing that, you know, he doesn't feel computers will ever uh, attain consciousness, but um, so you can program computers to sort of simulate you know, emotions, but it's, it's all, once again, they're just following those algorithms or that, that, those programs and then it's not real, you know, it's not a real uh, type of emotion that they're feeling. Sorry, Shifu, then we've uh, got another, we've got somebody else with their hand up. I think Nuras wants to say something. Yes, please. Uh, right. um, uh, in terms of, um, obviously, one, one of the perspectives, uh, I guess, this sort of epiphenomena of nerve activity leading to consciousness, obviously, they, they, uh, the proponents of it say, you know, it's a random event. Um, there's no meaning to it and there's no meaning to consciousness. Um, so I guess that may be, you know, one of the challenges that if we accept it's just an epiphenomenon of nerve activity uh, consciousness that you know the, obviously we believe there is meaning and consciousness is uh, is you know at the heart of what differentiates human beings from other animals or inanimate uh, creation as well so. yeah yeah definitely I mean think you've, you've hit the nail on the head as well um, this is the whole debate you know um, what is consciousness? Is it, as you say, just an epiphenomena? But I think those, those are the really diehard sort of reductionist biolog bio biological, uh, neurological uh, approach. Um, but I, I think we'll come back to that in a later slide as well, because there's a whole, it's an ongoing debate, you know, uh, between some, some uh, scientists, philosophers, and so on. Um, I think to just reduce it to just a sort of meaningless epiphenomenon of neurological activity is a bit extreme. But yeah, the, the view is definitely out there. And um, uh, I, I, I don't think the majority would, uh, you know, so yeah, it does depend on how much significance you attach to it. But, uh, and also sister, uh, Dr. Sanya mentioned about the soul and where does the soul come into this? Uh, so for that, for us, that's also an interesting question, because we do believe in the soul, of course. And um, this is what I was saying, going back to the first lesson. So th these classes are sort of building on each other as well. So when we go back to the difference in worldview, it's very important. Uh, ultimately, we have a, we do have a completely different um, understanding of reality when it comes to questions like the soul. Uh, but we'll we'll come back to that again as well. What is the soul? Um, what do we mean by soul? And I would argue uh, as well that the soul, what we understand by soul is nothing other than what is today referred to as psyche or mind. Um, because uh, even in our most secular or most, say, biological 
approaches, you still see these terms bounded about psyche, mind. Um, those hardcore uh, biological reductionists that you're probably referring to, uh, Nora Zaman, is uh, they would probably say there's no such thing as mind, really. It's just brain, you know, and mind is just a concept which is not really mean anything. All we have is brain, all we have is neurons firing around. But uh, inshallah, when we go into the complexity as well, we'll see that this is all tied in. Um, because really, um, the phenomena that we call mind or psyche, um, I don't believe you can um, reduce it to just neurons. Um, and that's where complexity theory will also come back, uh, inshallah. So yeah, all of it is linked. Uh, I, and I, I'm not uh, by any means claiming to be an expert as well, by the way, just as a disclaimer uh, in any of this stuff. Um, it's just something I feel is of rele relevance and interest. And as also as an Islamic scholar, uh, as I said in the beginning, I, I believe it's directly related to our Aqidah now. Um, we can't really be scholars and theologians without going into these fields. Um, because they're at the very heart of um, our understanding of reality. Sorry, Sheikh, there's one yeah. more question. I think somebody's got their hand up, Henna, and then I think we won't take any more questions for now. To yeah. Oh, no, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy to take questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no questions, I mean, just very quick. Um, I, I read it of Sir, or I heard um, a khutbah, and the, the person was saying, um, I think, you know, not, not to sound like a broken record, but I'm pretty sure it was Khalid Abu Fadl, but I think he was saying that, um, there's some classical Arabic tafsir that said that the, when Allah taught Adam the names, um, that his interpretation of the tafsir of that was that the names was, um, you know, kind of a metaphorical understanding of the intellect and, and the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the capacity of the, the mind to think and make judgments. Um, and, and it almost seemed like, you know, the idea of consciousness was wrapped up with intellect um, and the names that Adam was taught that made Adam different to, to all other creations. So um, I just thought that was really interesting because, um, you know, surely if that's the, if that's the truth of Sir, if that, if that is a good interpretation, then, um, you know, that that's saying something very specific about consciousness um, as and, and the intellect being linked um, as, as something that, um, you know, is, is not, not something that's not available to any other creation species. Yes, great point. Yeah, I think that is all linked as well. And um, um, Alama Iqbal as well, uh, a, a scholar that I'm becoming more familiar with recently, you know, uh, Muhammad Iqbal from uh, back in uh, the Pakistani. He's one of our really uh, big scholars uh, who I very late and, you know, he also made that, um, his opinion, his interpretation of that, you know, Adam being taught the names, he said, then, you know, the ability to name uh, is basically the ability to, 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 to name is, is key to the intellect, intellectual functioning. So when you can name something, you can name a concept. So in other words, conceptual thinking uh, is, is from being able to name. So yeah, he, he also brought it back to that. And so, yeah, this, it's very much tied up. Inshallah, in one of our later classes, I'm going to be focusing more on... Um, uh, these idea of um, Ghazali's idea of this uh, psychology and so on. So, yeah, these things will, will continue to come up, inshallah. Um, but they are key, yes. Um, I just wanted to now go into a related, uh, and it will it will come back together, inshallah. Um, we're talking about quantum theory. Uh, once again, I, I by no means I'm claiming to be any ex sort of expert in physics or anything like that. 
But I do think it's important for us as educated Muslims or scholars uh, to be aware of uh, these things because uh, physicists are now today's theologians, uh, really, in the West, you know. Uh, they're talking about um, theological, metaphysical ideas uh, now. Uh, this is where people look to, to get those. This is the people that pe people look to. So we also have to be very much aware of. Uh, so I, I've spent a lot of time over the years reading um, uh, books written by leading physicists for lay people. Um, so I think, you know, we, we can't really have access to theoretical physics because unless you actually, you know, go into that field. But we do, you know, a lot of these uh, leading physicists do write for uh, educated lay people and are able to summarize the field. So I think uh, there's a lot of very interesting uh, things there for us as Muslims, um, educated Muslims and um, scholars and so on. Uh, the interesting thing is that quantum uh, quantum mechanics and quantum physics has actually now come across consciousness, uh, which is very, very strange, um, but, uh, but uh, a fact that we have to deal with. And physicists are trying to deal with the fact themselves. Um, so, as I say, if we, if we look at some of the ideas of quantum physics, uh, some of you may be aware and uh, that quantum physics is to do with the subatomic realm. There's two main theories uh, within physics. Uh, uh, you have Einstein's theories of relativity, uh, general and special relativity. And those are concerned with the macro, so the, the, the very, very large aspect of the universe. Um, Whereas quantum theory looks at the subatomic, so the, the other extreme. And the two theories are very well established in the, in the sense that, as you know, with scientific theories, as you find more and more data to, 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 back, to, to support those theories, the theories become more and more established as time goes on. And both relativity and quantum theory are both very much uh, established in terms of uh, data, scientific data and, and, and practical um, experiments have verified them, you know. Uh, however, the interesting thing is that the both theories are mutually contradictory. They both uh, cannot be correct. So that's why you hear about physicists always searching for the unified, the grand unified theory, the theory that will bring together quantum, uh, quantum mechanics and uh, relativity. That has not quite been done, although some feel that they uh, uh, are getting close or some theories have been put forward, but um, it's still an outstanding uh, thing. But both theories work uh, for the purposes of practical uh, physics. Um, Einstein himself, uh, spent most of his life trying to disprove quantum mechanics. Uh, but since his time, it has been more and more established. So it's a very, very strong um, theory in terms of being established by facts uh, or, or practical measurements and so on. 
Anyway, um, going to Schrodinger's cat. Uh, you can see there in the cartoon, uh, Dr. Schrodinger and the RSPCA man. And there's a little caption at the bottom saying, um, are you quite sure it's just a hypothetical cat? So Dr. Schrodinger, uh, he was a contemporary of Einstein. He um, developed this thought, thought experiment to show, he was really trying to show the really bizarre nature of what quantum mechanics was discovering. Um, because what quantum physics has discovered are really counterintuitive uh, facts about the universe. That when we start looking into the subatomic realm, uh, things behave in a very, very strange and peculiar way that is really counterintuitive. It doesn't really, um, it's almost defies our logical way of looking at the universe. So what we used to be called the um, Newtonian, Newtonian physics, Newtonian universe, which is like a grand clockwork where things function in a way that we can understand and make sense of. Once you start looking at, at the subatomic realm, uh, the quantum realm, as it's known, things just start very, very bizarre things start happening. Um, and Schrodinger was a, a, a quantum physicist himself, but he was really just sort of, um, I want to say disturbed, but he was, he wanted to sort of demonstrate how bizarre uh, what they were doing or what they were discovering was. So he, he, he demonstrated that with the famous uh, thought experiment known as Schrodinger's cat. Um, because what quantum physics had found was that subatomic particles and even atomic particles exist in two different states at the same time, right? Two or more different states at the same time. Um, and that, that's, just now, that's just now accepted as a fact of quantum physics. But when someone observes uh, the particle, when you have a conscious observer, like a human being or, a, or some sort of monitoring device, at that moment in time, when you observe the particle, it then collapses uh, into one state out of the two or more different states that it was in previously. Uh, so that probably sounds bizarre, but that's what quantum physics have found. And, and as I say, it's become more and more established by uh, practical demonstration as time has gone past. Um, so what Schrodinger said, and this was a, a, a funny uh, quote from Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist, Cambridge, you probably, I'm sure you know of him, um, who had um, motor neuron disease. Uh, one of the world's leading physicists of his time, died recently. He, he famously said, when I hear about Schrodinger's cat, I'll reach for my gun uh, because <laughs> Oh, because Schrodinger had just basically, um, you know, he had, he, by using this thought experiment, he was showing physicists, look, it's all, it was all fine us having all of these fancy theories about a particle being in many different states at the same time and so on. But what it actually means uh, is that the following, you know? So Schrodinger, he said, look, imagine there's a box yeah, a closed box, completely sealed up and closed up. Uh, 
And inside the box, we have a cat. Um, now, inside the box, there's also a radioactive element. The radioactive substance, uh, the radio, there's a radioactive particle, a radioactive particle. Now, that radioactive particle may decay or it may not decay. As you probably know, radioactive elements or, or, or compounds have a half-life, what's called a half-life. So within that time, uh, some particles will decay and, 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 and let off radioactive uh, rays and so on. And some of them do not decay. Um, so there's, you could, let's say to, to simplify, there's a 50-50 chance if the radioactive particle has decayed or not decayed at any given time. If the, <clears throat> if the radioactive particle decays, it, it triggers, the decay of the particle triggers the release of some poison inside the box. And when the poison is released, the cat dies. So you've got a box, you've got a radioactive particle, which is linked to a mechanism which releases some poison. If the poison is released, the cat dies. Now the radioactive um, particle, according to quantum physics, according to quantum theory, is in both states at the same time. It is, it is decayed and it is not decayed at the same time. This was the whole thing. So according to quantum physics, the cat is both dead and alive at the same time. Now, when someone opens a box and looks inside the box, then the wave, what's called the quantum wave function collapses and the particle is either in one state or the other, not in both states at the same time. So as soon as you have the conscious observer, either the cat will be alive or dead, it won't be both at that point. But prior to that point, as long as the box is closed, uh, both uh, states are present at the same time. And this is what Schrodinger was trying to uh, reveal to the, the, to the scientific community that look, because when you talk about subatomic realm, it's very easy to talk about, oh, the particle is in a wave form and it's in multiple different states at the same time, because you can't actually observe that subatomic level. But he was then trying to bring it to the uh, macro level, so you can actually see how bizarre and how counterintuitive this is to say that the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. Einstein liked this particular uh, Schrodinger's cat e example, uh, because as I said, Einstein was not in favor of quantum uh, theory, full stop. And he famously said, you know, God does not play dice because there's, uh, there's, there's certain aspects in quantum theory to do with uncertainty and so on. Anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to make is, uh, the point that I find uh, is quite of interest for us is that this idea of a conscious observer. Because how come there's a, what, how, because you know, that in itself does not make any scientific sense. If we're, if we're you know, a biological reductionist um scientists 
where does conscious observer come into things? Uh, so that's a, that's a that's a really really fundamental question um, that quantum physics is actually recognizing that a conscious observer is a real phenomenon. So, you know, going back to Nord, what you were saying about, you know, there's there's nothing except for neurons and the brain and all of that is just an epiphenomena that means nothing. However, here we see that it does mean something. The conscious observer suddenly becomes very central to the whole uh, to the whole uh, system of quantum physics, and uh, physicists are finding this very very difficult to deal with. Because uh, as we'll mention in a in a later slide, uh, the idea of consciousness is in some ways goes totally against the whole uh, basis of science as it's thought of. Um, so here, uh, what else are we saying? Um, so yeah, physicists are struggling with this. It's an ongoing uh, issue for them, how to deal with this sudden sort of intrusion of the conscious observer uh, within their theories and how, how they can actually sort of explain that away has become one of their big preoccupations. Um, just, a, just an example of one of the books that are out there, uh, quantum, quantum Enigma Physics Encounters Consciousness. There's many, many different uh, books now that are out there that you can look at. Um, what I would like to do, if it's okay, is now play a short video by Jamal Khalidi because I think, you know, I could explain it myself, but when you see uh, someone like that, it hopefully will um, reveal a bit more. I'm gonna see if the, the video does play. Inshallah, hopefully you'll be able to see it on the Zoom screen. It's only about seven minutes, so please bear with, and hopefully it will be interesting, Inshallah. It's just gonna demonstrate one or two of these core quantum physics ideas that, I'm, that I wanna focus on, Inshallah. Um, Oh, okay. I think I, no, I think I know what it is. With this, and it basically tells you what it's all about. Okay, so we're just going to play this, inshallah. Uh, it's called the two-slit experiment. I'll start with this. Imagine you have a source of light shining against a screen with two slits. Now, for the pedants in the audience, this source of light has to be monochromatic light, light of a particular wavelength. Well, whereas of course a light bulb is white light and that's made up of all the colors of the spectrum, lots of different wavelengths. But imagine this is just a single wavelength of light and you can see the light is coming out in, 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 in waves like, like ripples in a pond. That's the nature of you know, wave-like behavior. As the light hits the screen, it squeezes through the two slits and each slit in turn on the other side becomes almost like a new source of light and the light spreads out, it diffracts. And as the waves of light overlap, they will interfere with each other. So where a crest hits uh, a trough, they will cancel, where a crest hits a crest, they will amplify and so on. And so on the back screen, you end up with what's called an interference pattern, a, a, a series of light and dark fringes where the waves have either canceled out or worked together in phase. 
That's fine. That's not quantum mechanics. That's a property of light that goes back over 200 years that we've known about since the early 19th century. Imagine doing the same experiments again, but doing it not with waves, but with particles. Do it with grains of sand. So this is the same experiment, but I've tipped it 90 degrees. Rather than waves that are spread out that wash up against the two slits and squeeze through, here you've got individual particles of sand, and each particle will either go through one slit or the other. And so you see they will sort of drain through and you get two bumps underneath each of the slits. So the two peaks is reminiscent of particle-like behavior, whereas the, the multiple pattern of interference is wave-like behavior. What if we do the same experiment with atoms? Well, uh, so imagine we have an atom gun, something can fire uh, atoms, a, a stream of atoms, you can't see them because they're very small. Let's block off one of the two slits. So these two slits are, are you know, the, the, the dimensions and separation of the slits is, is, is chosen appropriately to, to show us uh, how atoms do things. And so far, so good. Nothing strange here. You'll see a lot of atoms hitting the back screen. So this will now have to be some sort of photosensitive screen where, whereby when an atom hits it, they'll, it'll give off a little flash of light to say the atom has arrived here. So the atoms are arriving as these little pinpricks of light that we see. Of course, a lot of the atoms will be blocked by the first screen. They won't go through that slit. Uh, but those that do get through to the other side, you can see there's a bit of spreading of, of, of the atoms. But if we didn't know anything about atoms, you say, well, that's fine, we can understand that. Um, some, a lot of the atoms are going clean through the slit. Some are sort of maybe bouncing off the edge of the slit, and so they're sort of being deflected a bit, which is why you get a bit, a bit of a spread. The first mystery of quantum mechanics comes when we open the second slit. Because now we see something that's very much like the interference pattern we got with light. Rather than having two bands of, of, of uh, spots where the atoms have gone through the two slits, it's as though the atoms have gone through the slits behaving like waves, and, 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 and you get interference of the waves and you get these bands. If we know nothing about atoms or quantum mechanics, you could try and rationalize and say, well, you know, maybe atoms behave in a very strange way, and um, only a certain number of them are allowed to all sit together. And so, you know, me and my gang, we're all going to go on this slit. No, sorry, no room for you. You go to the next slit above. And by the way, there's this rule that no one can go in between the, the two bands, but a few naughty atoms do. So there's a bit of a, a scatter. You know, we don't, there could be some forces between atoms that make them coordinate their actions in a way to give this pattern. That's not mysterious. That's just, we just don't know how atoms do things. But we can be clever and we can force the issue. What if we were to not send the atoms all through at once, but send them through one at a time? Leave enough of a gap for the atom to get through to hit the screen. Of course, as I say, some atoms will um, hit, the, uh, hit the, the, the first screen and not get through. But those that get through will hit the back screen. So let's run the experiment again slowly. And gradually you'll see as the atoms go through, they'll be look like they're just randomly arriving on, on the other side. You keep sending atoms through one at a time. And gradually 
that same pattern appears. So each atom by itself is somehow contributing its small part to the overall wave-like behavior that we see in the interference pattern. How does it do it? How, how, how does, we know the atom is a tiny localized particle. We can't see it. it's too small to even see under a microscope. We're firing it at the, the, the screen with the two slits. Some moment later, you see a flash of light on the back screen. It's arrived in a localized point. It's not spread itself out. You don't get sort of like a wash of a, sort of a, a faint light across the whole screen. It's a little point. The atom is localized, it's arrived in a certain location. And yet, it somehow seems to have been aware of there being two slits, not one, because it's given rise to this interference pattern. How does one atom do that? Does it split in half? Does it become like a, a cloud that goes through both? Well, we can try and be even cleverer. What if we were to spy on the atom and see where it goes? We can just gently just observe which slit it goes through. So you put a detector just above the upper slit that will flash or beep whenever it sees an atom go through that top slit. Sure enough, you fire the atoms through one at a time. 50% of the time, the detector will beep. The other 50% of the time it doesn't, the assumption being that the atom has gone through the lower slit. But of course, I've been cheeky here. I haven't shown you the results of the experiment. That's what you get. 50% of the time, it beeps, and you see a spot arrive adjacent to the upper slit. The other half of the time, it doesn't beep, but you see a spot arrive at the lower slit. So, yeah. So just, uh, I just want to quickly uh, recap a couple of points so far that he's mentioned that are relevant. Uh, so first of all, I mean, what he showed was that when you saw those atoms going through one at a time, but they were still forming that wave-like pattern on the back screen. So as he said, somehow it seems as though each individual atom is contributing to a pattern. But how can that be? How can an atom know that it has to land in a certain, to, to you see what I mean, to form a pattern? That means somehow each individual atom must have a awareness of the whole pattern that is being created, which is really, really bizarre. It's sort of attributing knowledge to an atom, right? That was the first bizarre thing. The second bizarre thing now he's shown is once you put a, a monitoring device uh, to, to on top of one of the slits, suddenly the atoms are behaving differently. They're, they're forming two different distinct bands instead of that wave-like uh, uh, distribution. So they're somehow, just because they're being observed, they're behaving differently. And that is also uh, completely bizarre. It's picked out the atoms that have gone through the upper slit and not the ones that have gone through. So each atom does go through one slit or the other. But that's a different result to what we had earlier. So here's the last bit of sneakiness that we can play with atoms. Surely now, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get to grips with it. Leave the detector there, but just very quietly go and unplug it. <laughs> Don't let the atoms know that you're not spying on them. 
make them think that you're still detecting them. So, yeah, 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 okay, we're gonna run the experiment, atoms, okay, get ready, one at a time, we're gonna be checking on you. All right, so run the experiment again. <laughs> now, if you can explain this using common sense and logic, <laughs> do let me know, because there's a Nobel Prize for you. Quantum and so you see there at the end, uh, oh sorry, I'll just let him finish. Entanglement is the idea that particles, however far apart they are, still somehow their fates remain intertwined. They, they are still aware of each other's existence. So there, you know, um, I think, you know, um, right at the end was completely, um, you know, another completely bizarre counterintuitive, you know, thing that you would never expect um, from the sort of biological reductionist point of view. So what, what we had was at the end, when, when you, because, you know, physicists thought, wait a minute, we're adding, we're putting a camera there or a monitor and suddenly the atoms are behaving differently. Maybe it's the, the actual physical presence of the, the monitoring thing that is causing them to behave differently. So that's why he said, you know, you sneak to the back and switch off the power. So it's no longer monitoring. We change nothing else. Uh, but somehow, uh, then they reverted back to their previous pattern. So how can atoms, how can atoms have any type of awareness? Uh, uh, or so on. So this is what he referred to right at the end, the idea of qu quantum entanglement. So quantum entanglement is the idea that uh, particles and even subatomic particles somehow are linked. You know, the state they're in is somehow linked to the state of a different, to other particles. This goes against um, Einstein's uh, theory that the speed of light is the maximum, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Because first of all, if you have a particle in one place and a particle in another place, instantaneously, they seem to be aware of the state of the other particle. So instantaneously, meaning there's no time, you know, so, so it's faster than speed of light, it's, it's instantaneous, you know. How can that be? How can there be um, that sort of, uh, transmission of information between one particle and another uh, instantaneously. So lots of different uh, questions come about. Um, so going back to now the philosophy of science. So Fulford, who's a professor of philosophy and mental illness in the University of Warwick, he wrote in one of his articles um, that the sort of, um, sorry, different slide. He, he wrote that uh, within sort of reductionist science, there's no place for free will. There's no place, in other words, for consciousness, because everything is supposed to be completely deterministic. Yeah? Uh, the idea is that if we have enough, once we get enough information about how nerve cells work and what's going on between the different synapses and the transmissions. Once we get to the bottom of it, we continue reducing, reducing, reducing until we get to the bottom of things. 
ultimately we should be able to figure out uh, everything, you know. Uh, and so there's no really any such thing as free will. Um, all of it is an illusion and so on. So he describes this as a paradox right at the center of science. Uh, the fact that you actually cannot have science without a conscious entity. Um, there's no such thing as science if you don't have a conscious observer. If you don't have a human being, how can you even talk about science? Uh, this takes us back to Ghazali, uh, Imam al-Ghazali, one of our greatest scholars who lived a thousand years ago, almost a thousand, nine hundred years ago. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, that 900 years ago, Imam al-Ghazali, um, in his chapter of Ahiya al-Muddin, he says very clearly that the human soul is composed of two core components. Uh, free will slash consciousness and uh, what he calls idraq al-ilm. Idraq al-ilm, the ability to know, to, the ability to have knowledge which is linked to consciousness as well, because without consciousness, you, can't, you cannot know anything because you don't have any awareness. You don't have any self-awareness. So according to Imam al-Ghazali, this is what we mean by soul um, or ruh. And Imam al-Ghazali also says that aql, he says basically there's, there's a, all of these different terms are, 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 are different terms for the same entity. So ruh, aql, qalb, and nafs. These four different terms that we use, soul, intellect, heart, and um, ego, or nafs, or, or self. These are all different aspects of the same entity, which we could say is the soul. And uh, what I was saying earlier was, I think this is no different to what is referred to as psyche or mind uh, in today's psychology. And according to Imam al-Ghazali, uh, you know, inshallah, we're going to hold a whole uh, circle on that, um, his, um, uh, his uh, um, view of the human soul later. But the, this soul is also connected in some way to the infinite realm, uh, the realm of the divine consciousness. So for me, I think I'm probably going to have to wind up now because we've come to the end of our time. And we probably have to next time come back to the complexity because uh, we didn't really get time to go into complexity theory uh, and how that will then tie back to um, consciousness as well. Um, but just as a final, final, um, final comment, really, uh, for me, the fact that quantum uh, quantum physics has come across the um, consciousness, and as uh, many physicists say, um, you need a conscious observer for the wave function to collapse into one reality. Without the conscious observer, there's a, just a, a quantum wave, a, 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 a wave of possibilities, which all exist at the same time. So for me, really, I think going back to our theology, the ultimate conscious observer 
is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate conscious observer of the universe. So I think here, personally, Allah, Allah knows best, but uh, quantum physics have come across, you know, when they've gone very, very deep into the subatomic realm, to the deepest, you know, the very, very minuscule uh, subatomic realm, they've come to the heart of the matter, which is that there is a conscious observer for the universe, and that conscious observer ultimately is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that's why you don't have a multiverse. The multiverse is the infinite different quantum possibilities of the universe. But only one of them exists in reality because you have that ultimate observer, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So inshallah, I hope, I hope that was some food for thought. Uh, as I say, I'm, I'm no, by no means claiming to be an expert in any of this, but uh, just someone who's read a lot as a layperson and uh, feel that it's uh, very relevant to us um, in studying Islam. And, uh, inshallah, I think probably next time we'll have to go, go into the, um, the other area that I wanted to cover today, which was complexity theory and how that all relates back, inshallah. Jazakallah I have to say that was really interesting. And um, I think, you know, Jazakallah for sharing it and expanding our horizons and getting those of us who haven't studied physics up to date. I thoroughly enjoyed that, actually. It's lots of healthy food to think about and can't wait till the next session to kind of hear some more. Jazakallah I think, um, you know, I don't know if anybody's watched The Theory of Everything, but it talks about Stephen Hawking's life. And it's yeah. very fascinating because he flits between belief and atheism and ultimately... It, you know, if you were to really take what he's coming to, you know, there, there is, you know, there's no denying the unity of Allah subhanahu wa that underpins everything in creation. And they keep going around in circles, whether from their own hearts are looking at science to replace the role of religion or God, but they, there's no running away. And that's why they come up with so many complex ways of getting around things. But this was very insightful. I think... Norris has got his hand up, and I don't know if anybody else wants to ask some questions before we wrap up. That's all right. So, Norris, do you want to unmute? Yeah, Jazakallah Hiram. I think, um, uh, I, I guess my observation was uh, we're interested to know uh, what Sidi's view is. Um, you know, we've got very strong Christians who are very eminent physicists, say, like Alistair McGrath, John Polkinghorn. Um, and obviously, they defend Christian theology at the same time as the observations on, 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 on current physics. Um, I don't know if, CB, if you have any observations on, on uh, people like that. Obviously, sometimes, uh, particularly when people are defending a religious position, obviously, the, these are people that are sometimes used. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think to be honest, you're, I mean, I think uh, Christian theologians are, are far ahead of the Muslim theologians in this field. Um, they have, as you say, you know, that a lot of them have uh, already seen these connections that I'm sort of alluding to today. And there's a lot more as well, inshallah, we're going to cover in other, uh, in, the, in future circles. Um, I think, uh, going back to Iqbal as well, one of the things that Iqbal said, you know, he said that um, in time, he predicted, he said he predicted in time, science is going to 
reveal things that will reinforce our belief, in fact, even though at that time science was almost anti-religion, as you say. And, and I think he's, he was completely right, and this is what's actually happened. Uh, this is what I'm alluding to, really, in, in the realm of quantum physics. Now, the, the complication is that the, the people who are at the leading edge of this field are obviously physicists, and these are hardcore. Most of them are atheists, you know, or, or at best agnostics like uh, um, Hawking and so on. So they, they are expending a lot of effort right now trying to sort of explain away, uh, you know, a lot of the things that they're finding, uh, inshallah, but we'll definitely be coming back to uh, more and more scientific um, things that have come out in physics and other sciences as well, that really are just all pointing to, to the existence of a creator, really, um, and reinforcing our belief in God. But uh, yeah, I mean, we need to, this is why, I, this is partly why I'm also bringing these things forward to you guys, is because as um, I think educated Muslims, um, you know, you, all of you are doctors or uh, training to be doctors. So, you know, you're, you're the intellectual creme de la creme of our community. And I said troubling thought, but uh, it's true, you know, so we need, uh, you know, these are, they're quite, you know, these are things that we need to be as Muslims really uh, going into and, um, catching up with these Christians, really, who are already way ahead of us and writing a lot more advanced uh, books on, on these areas, uh, which we can also take from, obviously, as well. But uh, as Muslims, we should be there, you know? We need, um, we need Muslim physicists uh, that are also trained in uh, Islamic theology and so on, that can, um, that can deal with some of these issues. اللهم تقبل منا إنك أنت السميع العليم وصلى سيد المرسلين وآله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله رب العالمين آمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more content like this, go to civilizations.org.uk.